Mr. So we're going to dive back into the life of David here. Um, let's see if I can get this up onto the TV. Do, do, do. Mm-hmm. Is the Sanctuary TV Chromecast going to work back there? What do you think, guys? Airplay? Well, let's see. Let's see if we can do that. Technical difficulties today, everybody. On-screen code? Oh, fancy. All right. Is that looking like it's going to go? Maybe. Well, either way, let's have Sean. I'm actually going to have Sean do our reading this morning. So I invite my brother Sean up. Thank you, Sean. All right, if you guys have your Bibles with you, we're going to be jumping into 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. All right, First Samuel chapter 24. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him, because he had cut Saul's robe, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen the Lord delivered you into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, no. And see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. And I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Then the Lord, let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom, 
after whom the king uh, of is uh, after whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, "Is this your voice, my son David?" And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me. You have, you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he, not, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know, indeed, you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me now this day by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to, so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for reading that whole passage, that whole chapter for us, and how great to dive into the Word a little bit. You know, we, we've been reading a little bit about church history, and uh, we've got a lot of church uh, activities and things like that that we do, uh, but really learning about how the early church, when they gathered together, you know what they did? They prayed, they took communion, and they read the Word. You know, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of, we don't have a lot of sermons from that time written down, but really, it's like the hearing the hearing of the word. And so how great to, to, what a blessing to hear the word. We've gone to the, the Messianic congregations here in town. Um, and you know what they do when they get together? You know, a lot of it's reading the word and liturgy uh, and hearing the, the word written. And so uh, what a blessing to hear the word together, to pray together uh, as a body. All right, so we're, we're diving back into David here. And thanks again to Sean for reading it. Um, just kind of a recap of where we've been. We've actually been doing Life of David for like almost a couple months now. It like doesn't seem... It's kind of crazy to think about, but we're slowly making our way through through his life. I want to just kind of review a little bit of where we, we've been to, uh, where we've been before we get to where we're going today, which is trusting in God's leadership. Uh, um, so recap kind of where we started. Think back a couple months ago where we started. So why study the life of David? And again, you know, David is this almost this picture, um, a little bit of a forerunner for Jesus, and he's a man after God's own heart. We talked about patience and the seasons of life. Becca brought us through all these different seasons, and actually we're, we're moving through those seasons. Believe it or not, we're, we're making progress. We're, we're going through these different seasons and seeing David's faithfulness to God and God's, his heart towards God in the midst of all these different types of seasons and how we can be encouraged in the seasons of our life. Um, God sees the heart. Again, you know, we always look at the outer appearance, but we saw from David's anointing how much God values the heart, not just the external. Uh, we looked at the faithfulness in the small things when David was just a shepherd boy. We looked at his faithfulness when he became the hero of Israel. Uh, we looked at Lord's protection of David when Saul was trying to kill him, literally like throwing spears at him, right? Like twice. Remember we talked about how like David went back to work the next day even after Saul threw a spear at him. Um, but so he, the Lord protected him. Overcoming despair, um, you know, Becca's talked about uh, the, the times of despair, the season where, uh, he, you know, Saul was killing all the different priests. He massacred them. Last week, my, my sister talked about courage and resolve and betrayal, um, talking about that time in, in where David actually saved this city, and the city turned around, it was going to hand him over, you know, and just that betrayal of that, right? Like, 
Uh, we, we were, Beck and I were chatting with somebody last week, was, and it like perfectly timed. I, I don't even know if we shared this with you, Jeb, but just they were sharing about just this betrayal in their own life. Like they had helped somebody like with their house and all this stuff, and that person wanted to sue them. It was just like this, this, this crazy betrayal story. Um, but how much they were encouraged by, by David's story of that. And now we're, we're turning to trusting God's leadership when mistreated. And it's, it's similar to the, the last couple of weeks, but each chapter in First Samuel, we get to see a little bit more in a different situation to how David responded in his heart. Um, and, and this is just a little bit different than, than some of these previous. I mean, David's, you know, we're covering this whole season, a couple of chapters where David's just on the run, right? He's betrayed left and right. But I, I really was moved by this chapter, um, especially seeing uh, David's heart uh, in this specific circumstance. So we're going to dive into it. And uh, thank you again, Sean, for reading that, that chapter. But basically, you know, we, we've looked at a couple of these last chapters and we looked at betrayal, right? So Kayla, that city that David, like, I mean, he goes out there and fights their enemies for them. And then he's like, wait, God, something feels off. Are they going to turn me over? And God's like, yup. <laughs> you should go. <laughs> you know, they're going to betray you, right? And so, and then mistreatment. I mean, Saul's been mistreating him since, you know, basically day one. All these accusations, false accusations. My sister talked about Dog the Edomite, like, David, like, looked back, was like, I knew he was going to betray me. And he, Dog actually goes to Saul and tells all these false accusations, right, about the priests, false accusations about David. And even in this chapter, what does David say? David says to Saul, your servants are lying about me, that I have bad intent towards you. You know, he's been falsely accused. So how do we respond? You know, last couple of chapters, we looked at how David responded. We even read Psalms. He wrote songs. I mean, who's been at a point in their life when they're so down that they, like, wrote poetry or wrote songs? I, I confess there was one time I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a poem. People who know me were like, you wrote a poem? I wrote a poem. I was very sad. Like, <laughs> nobody will ever read it. It'll never see the light of day again. But, like, if you guys know me, I'm not, like, an art. Like, you see uh, Janine in the, the prayer room. She, like, she's drawing these beautiful pictures and, like, stuff like that. Um, and, like... I am not an artist at all, but like, you know, uh, you know, there's just points in your life. If you haven't had that, I think you probably will at some point in your life. You're pretty down. Maybe you write a song. Maybe you write a poem. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, or maybe you draw a picture, even though you're, that's like not your gifting, okay? But David, like we have all these songs that we can look at from David because he wrote them in the midst of these difficult circumstances, all right? And uh, we actually get to see his heart response to how he responded to all this accusation, all this attack, all this mistreatment. But Psalm 124 is, uh, or sorry, 1 Samuel tw chapter 24 is a little bit different because this is the instance where actually the tables start to turn, okay? So in all those other circumstances, I'm David's on the run, like he's in his house and like there's people outside like, you know, waiting for him to come out, like he's in trouble. Uh, his wife has to make a little like mannequin statue to like pretend that he's in bed so that people like leave him alone so he has a chance to escape. I mean, he's just going through all these different hoops to, to, to run, barely saved by the, by uh, the, the, the skin of, what, what's that phrase? Saved by the skin of, skin of your teeth. Yes, I was like, it's, a, it's an anatomical part that doesn't actually have skin, but what is it? <laughs> saved by the skin of your teeth, right? He's saved by the skin of his teeth each of those times. But this, in the next, actually the next couple of chapters, we actually get to see how his heart responds uh, in moments that actually um, he uh, actually has a chance to take vengeance, all right? So it's different. These are actually times where instead of he's on the run, he, the power is in his hand, all right? How does he respond in this, this time? All right. uh, there's an important uh, a psalm, and this is one of the psalms that we're going to meditate on as, uh, as we read this, but this is Psalm 31, chapter 1 through 5. <clears throat> um, 
And, uh, and again, you know, it's so important for us to look at David, but also keep in mind looking at our own heart, right? Like we're not just reading his story. We want to apply his story, right, to our own lives. So keep that in mind as we read this psalm. How, how are you responding to mistreatment? I mean, if you're saying that there's nobody mistreating in your life, like praise the Lord, that's great. There will be, though. Or there has been and there will be, right? Uh, <clears throat> all right, so Psalm 31, <clears throat> verses 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. Psalm, one, Psalm 31. And, and, and the beauty, in the beauty of this, you know, David shows that his defense is not in his weaponry. I mean, he was a great warrior, right? This is the guy that killed Goliath. His defense is in the Lord, trusting in the Lord, okay? Trusting in the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> I heard somebody say meekness. You know, when we talk about meekness, meekness isn't just voluntary. It's, it's voluntary weakness. It's not being weak, but it's volunteering weakness. Actually having the strength to do something, but actually withholding your hand because, uh, because of humility, right, and trusting in the Lord. So David is a warrior, but he withholds his hand in circum certain circumstances of, of accusation and betrayal, even though he could, even though he could attack, even though he could defend, even though he could go on the offensive, he withholds. That's meekness, voluntary weakness, because he trusts the Lord. And that last verse, into your hands I commit my spirit, that the, the echo of that truth, of that message, resonates thousands of years later. His great-great-great-great-great-grandson hangs on the cross, and what does he say? He said, in the midst of Jesus on the cross, betrayed by all his disciples, betrayed by everybody who welcomed him into Jerusalem, what does he say? He echoes his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus quotes this very psalm of David on the cross. And it's this, that's the element that we need to copy in our lives from David, from Jesus, is that we trust the Lord in these circumstances. Into your, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so this is a major and essential, important element in our walk with the Lord. How do we respond to, to mistreatment from others? We have to first and foremost have a trust that we can commit our spirits to the Lord. All right, David committed to God everything, his reputation, his money, his position, his impact. He trusted the outcome of all of it to God. It doesn't mean he didn't do anything, right? It didn't mean that he never, like, acted out. I mean, he, he defended Caleb. He went to war, right? He, he was king and judge. He still did things. But when it came to accusations against him, his enemies, he actually turned the other cheek and said, into your, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, so it's important for us to, to learn this foundational principle. You know, there's another verse that, uh, that is a great, um, and that foundational principle, why can we trust the Lord? How can we have the trust to commit our spirit to the Lord? Well, we understand that we are not our own, right? And this is a biblical principle that throughout the Bible, Paul talks about it a ton. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verses 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, all right? So the foundational principle is the knowledge that I don't belong to me anymore. Like, I'm not number one. I don't make the decision. I'm not alone. I actually belong to God. I've been bought. Been bought with a very high price, the blood of Christ. All right? It's a marriage principle. All of us here as Christians are married to the lamb. 
we're married to the Lamb. And I, I, I'm not married, but who here? Raise your hand if you're married. You see, so there are married people here. Do, do you make decisions by yourself? I've, I've used this analogy before. It's actually probably pretty good to use it again because it would come out in the holiday season. But I, I've asked Vic before. Have you guys ever seen that commercial where, like, uh, the guy buys a Lexus, like he surprises his wife with a Lexus. Like they come out of the house and there's this like big, like $100,000 car sitting in the driveway with a big red bow on it. And everybody sees that commercial like, oh, that's awesome. Like, oh, how sweet. He bought that car. Talk to any of your, fr- any of your married friends and ask them if their husband, like a wife, if their husband went and spent like $120,000 on a car without asking them, like would they be happy? Like, no, absolutely not, right? They'd be like, what did you do? Like, how could you go and spend this much money without talking to me about it, right? Uh, I've had the privilege to hang out with Ken the last couple weekends and talk about, like, fun toys and stuff like that. Ken and I are very similar. If you ever see me and Ken, usually we're actually wearing, like, the same outfit. We have a lot of the same interests. And part of those, some of those interests are are buying toys that we don't actually need. So it's something that I have to to really... resolve myself of, but it's fun to talk about too. But Ken, anytime he's talking about something, he's like, well, I really want to get this smoker, this trigger, but I got to talk to the boss. <laughs> or like, man, I really want this, like, I want, the, like, we were talking about trucks, and I was like, yeah, my dream truck is the Ford Raptor R, like, V8, like, and Ken was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. I got to talk to the boss. <laughs> Marriage, in marriage, you don't make decisions anymore by yourself, right? Like the Bible even says, two become one, right? Like even Frank and so you guys have been married together for uh, how many years have you guys been married? 48, wow, coming up on the 50, on the golden. Congratulations, guys, that's awesome. Do you make decisions by yourself, Frank? Do you just be like, man, I, you know what, I'm just going to go Saturday and, uh, you know, I'm just going to go play some golf on my own. Just not tell Sue. Just like go and do whatever you want to do. <laughs> All right. Yeah, they're going to say, because you don't make decisions on your own anymore. (laughs) Because you're married, because you're married together. And the same thing, when we are married, we're married to the lamb. We don't make decisions. We no longer belong to ourselves. We're actually one, right? We're one with the lamb. And so we're no longer our own. We're bought with a price. We're married to the lamb. And and David understood this principle, that God um, he, he can't just make decisions on his own or do things on his own. He trusted the Lord, right? So that, that foundational principle, I am not my own. You know, um, in Ephesians 5 is the, is the famous verse about, you know, husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands. But one of the pieces of why submit, why submit in, in a relationship is because, uh, Paul goes on to say, Christ is the head of the church and he's the savior of the body. And so we can trust and submit in any of those situations that we don't understand because we can trust our our bridegroom king, Jesus, is the savior, right? He's the savior and defender of the body. That's what Paul talks about. And so that same sort of marriage relationship, I can trust and believe that my bridegroom judge, Jesus, is going to defend me. And that's the beauty of a marriage relationship, right? Like if I went to uh, Irene and I was like, I, don't, I would never do this, but I don't even know what I could do. But like, you know, if I was like yelling at Irene for something, I was like, Irene, how, I don't know, like, I almost ran you over with my car while I was driving, you know, 100 miles down the street because you were walking. How could you be walking down the street? Irene loves to walk down the street. She's a huge walker. I can absolutely 100% expect that if I am mistreating Irene, guess who I'm going to hear from? I'm going to hear from George, right? Like 100%, I'm going to hear from George, right? Because George, as a husband, is going to defend his wife, right? 
I can't have a person, I can't have a one-to-one -one, like uh, issue or like uh, an argument with Irene and not expect for her husband, George, to get involved with it, right? Because they're married together. Same sort of thing. If, we, if somebody else is mistreating us as the bride, we can be 100% sure and confident that our bridegroom loves us and is going to get involved, right? This, that's the same kind of confidence that, that David walked in, the same kind of confidence that we can walk in as the bride of Jesus, as the ones who are married to the Lamb, okay? Because again, we've been bought at a price. All right, and so David, these next three chapters of 1 Samuel, we can, we're actually going to see him walk this out, and sometimes not walk it out well. In fact, in the next chapter, we'll see him uh, need some help in walking it out, okay? But in today's chapter, uh, he's able to walk it out, despite it being so difficult. Again, remember the last, like, 10 chapters, we've heard David running from his enemies, right? Never having the chance to defend himself. And all of a sudden, this chapter, we actually see that he has, has this chance. So diving into the chapter again, so they're, they're in the En Gedi caves, all right? And Saul, Saul, if you remember from the last chapter, uh, he was about to get David. Like, they were, he was about to get him. And then all of a sudden, the Phil, they, he gets this message that the Philistines are attacking Israel, and he's got to go and fight, fight the Philistines. Saul goes and fights the Philistines as soon as he's done. 1 Samuel 24 tells us, as soon as he's done fighting the Philistines, back at it, right? He's back at it. Can you imagine how much hate he must have had for David? Like, literally, he went to war. And like you, you fight this war, like literally, like people dying, and then all of a sudden you're done. People are exhausted. Like it, it's absolute battle, and he's like, "I need to go hunt David again." And so he's like going from war to war, and he he brings three thousand. It says three thousand chosen warriors to go back and hunt David again. That's how much Saul was fixated on attacking David. And David, the Bible tells us, only had six hundred men. Okay, who's here is good at math? What is that? Is that? Uh, Five to one, right? Five to one. Five to one odds. Not great, right? Not great odds. And again, Saul's got these chosen warriors. The Bible tells us, who does David have? The Bible actually tells us they're distressed, they're the people that are in debt, and they're the discontented, okay? That's who went to David when he fled Saul, right? The Bible tells us, it's actually funny, it all starts with a D, so you can remember all the people that David had, the distressed, the debtors, the discontented, okay? That's who David got, all right? So he's got 600 of those, Saul's got 3,000 chosen warriors that are, like, battle-hardened and, and, re and ready to go. And they just got done with war, so they want to get David and just go home, right? So they're pretty motivated. All right, so they show up at En Gedi, where David is hiding out. And uh, those of us who have traveled to Israel have actually gotten to go there. David sh chose a pretty sweet place to hide out, okay? So actually, like, En Gedi's pretty beautiful. It's a spring right next to, uh, right in the middle of the desert, right next to uh, the Dead Sea, Okay, so everything's dead around it, dead, 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 dead water, dead fish, dead plants, dead desert, and there's this little spring, all right, it's En Gedi. Like, it's actually really beautiful for those of, those of you who've been there. But the cool thing about En Gedi is there's a bunch of caves. In fact, uh, that sort of region is where they found the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So there's all these different caves throughout that area there. And as, as Sean read for us in the passage, Saul sees one of these cage, caves, and he decides, hmm, I need to attend to my business, okay? So, and again, attend to my business is just a euphemism for pooping, okay? So he had to poop, all right? He had to go number two, all right? It's actually funny. As I was reading that, like, attend to his business, I was thinking about all the different ways that we have euphemisms for going to the bathroom. Like, in Chinese, we have, like, like da hao, right? Like, number two. Actually, it's funny because Chinese is the same. It's like, number two is the same thing. It's like, da hao, number two, big number, okay? Uh, <coughs> To tell you how far down the rabbit hole I went on this, there's an actual website called Poofamisms. Uh, it's called, 
different euphemisms for pooping. Anyways, so the Bible uses the euphemism of attend to his needs, all right? So he wasn't just going in there for whatever. He's going in there to number two. Now, if you're number two back in the day in the Old Testament, it isn't like us today where you got a private bathroom or like a toilet seat or stuff. Who, who's actually gone like camping and had to like, without getting too graphic, like, you know, you, you're not at a toilet. Brittany's been out there, a bunch of, yeah. So like, I, I remember the first time I went on missions in like deep China and like for the bathroom, they didn't actually have a bathroom. They just had this like, this like stand and like with a log and like, and then like a 10 foot drop and like this mound of generations of poop was underneath bottom there. And me and my sister were like, Nope, not doing that. <laughs> I actually, hel- I didn't go to the bathroom. I didn't poop for like three days. Like, cause I was just like, I am not like, I'm not going in there. I'm not falling into that. No way. And finally I couldn't hold it in. I actually had to like go out into the jungle of China and like dig a little hole for myself. Cause I would have rather done that than like go in this, this thing. And sort of thing. Like you actually have to dig a hole when you're out there, right? Yeah, like you dig a hole and it's a whole different, like we're used to sitting on, on toilet stuff. It's a whole thing. You're, you're totally vulnerable cause you're crouching and stuff like that. And I also didn't think about how, like, you know, we, we've got modern pants and stuff like that, not amenable to pooping out in the wilderness. Back then, they wore robes, all right? And so you're not, you're not just holding your robe up when you're, when you're going to the bathroom like that. It's still going to get dirty. You're actually removing all of it, all right? So probably Saul was, like, naked. He was probably naked in this cave, okay, doing his business, number two, okay? And in the back of the cave is David and his 600 discontented, deaded, uh, distressed, <laughs> distressed people, okay? Just wait. Can you imagine, like, hiding in the back of a cave with, like, all like your ragtag group of people, and all of a sudden you see the king, like, come in through the entrance, get naked, and start to, like, do number two, and you're, like, all quiet in the back. Like, <laughs> and, and then he farts, and you're, like. <laughs> but if you see these caves, like, in, in Angeti, like, you know, you're, if you're in the back of the cave, it's really bright outside, and it's the middle of the day. Like, you know, you guys have walked into caves before. Like, you can't see anything, right? So Saul's at the front. He can't see anything. Um, but you're in the back, like, you know, your eyes are just so they could see. They could see everything. And, and David's, David's men come to him, and they're like, this is it. Right? This is it. This is the moment you've been waiting for, right? Your enemy, naked, vulnerable, sitting right in front of you, it's perfect, right? This is perfect. This is God's will for you, right? That's what they told him. This is God's will for you. Like, how could it be any better? Right? This is the moment that you've been waiting for. And remembering, like, who's with him, right? These people, discontented, debted. They weren't debted to just anybody. They were probably indebted to the crown, right? Discontented, they are probably unhappy with Saul. That's the only reason they would have been running to join David. The people that were with him, uh, uh, if you remember Abiathar, um, the, uh, the priest, remember, there's only one priest that escaped Paul's massacre, or sorry, Saul's massacre. Saul massacred the entire priesthood, right? And then there was just one guy that survived. So imagine, like, uh, he even more so than probably David would want to kill, would want to kill Saul. And he's there too. He's like, that's the guy who killed my entire family and burned the village. And he's right there. Please, David, please, like, take his life. He's right there. Everybody wanted him to do it. It looked like the right thing to do. And how does, how does David, how does David respond to that? Because again, it's not just the internal pressure of like, man, there's the guy that persecuted me and is mistreating me. Everybody around him is like, David, do it, do it, do it. This is the will of the Lord, right? And David, um, again, this is the will of the Lord for you to take vengeance. Um, and David, you know, he's, he creeps up to Saul. And what does the scripture tell us? Instead of actually taking that vengeance into his own hands, what does he do? He goes and cuts the hem of, of Saul's robe. Okay. And even the scripture tells us as soon as he cuts it, what? He regrets it. He regrets it. He repents. He's like, man, I shouldn't have done that. He didn't even kill Saul. 
he still regretted. He still regretted lifting his hand just to cut the hem of his robe. He says, I, I, I wish I hadn't done that, right? I shouldn't have done that. And the hem of the robe uh, that, that David would have cut, again, the hem of the robe represents the Saul's kingly authority. Like, he wasn't just wearing any standard sackcloth robe or something like that. You know, he's wearing a priestly garment, and that had significance. You know, it wouldn't have just been a simple design. It would have had embroidery at the edges, uh, and that's what David cut. You remember when Jonathan gave his robe to David, how much that meant. The robe was a significant uh, symbol of kingly authority, and David cut the hem of it. In addition, in the, in the Old Testament law, you actually had to have tassels, right? So David probably cut one of the corners with the tassels. Uh, it actually made that, that robe no longer a, uh, um, a, a kosher robe, okay? Uh, and so David, even beyond, he didn't even take uh, vengeance by killing Saul. He actually regretted even harming him. And when I think about that, I'm just so moved because, like, imagine just people that have mistreated you in your life. Nobody's really tried to, like, kill me necessarily, like, throwing a spear at me in, in the wall. But, like, certainly you guys have had people above you or, or leaders or, or bosses or somebody mistreat you or say bad things about you. And even beyond just, like, taking um, uh, revenge on them or whatever, like, if you had the opportunity to do it, even doing something minor like that, you know, even something minor, and David regretted it. Like, David said, I shouldn't have done that. I think about even moments where, like, somebody's mistreating us like a boss, and you could, like, say a bad word about them or talk about them behind their back. Not necessarily, like, you know, just attacking them, but even just those small little things. I think this is the same sort of situation where David's like, man, I, I wouldn't even, I, I, looking back, I wouldn't even do that. You know? I wouldn't even do that. Because, again, the appeal that David makes in First Psalm 24 after he cuts that robe, uh, cuts the robe, he actually confesses it to Saul, right? And he says, I, I, my defense is the Lord. Again, that same principle, my defense is the Lord. The Lord, he says explicitly, the Lord will take vengeance for me. The Lord will take vengeance for me. And so in looking at that, do we trust, even in those moments where there's people that are really out to get us, do we trust that the Lord is going to take vengeance for me? That same confidence, that, that marriage confidence that we're married to the lamb who's going to take vengeance, right? That we're the bride, not the bridegroom, that we can actually submit and say, God, I know Jesus said, you're a jealous bridegroom. Uh, you're going to be the husband that defends your wife. Uh, that's what David trusted as well. You know, I think about, again, going back to Jesus. You know, we talked about Jesus on the cross. Jesus, even on the Sermon on the Mount, turning the other cheek. This is a perfect example right here, you know, where David churns the other cheek. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 40, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take off your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Right, David had so much confidence in the Lord's ability to get justice for him that even at the moment that he could have taken it into his own hands, he actually gives up that opportunity. And then not only that, even the little thing that he did, cutting the rope, he confesses it to Saul, right? He's, he's backed up in a cave. There's nowhere else to go. He could have just let Saul move out and keep going, but he actually confessed, he actually acknowledged, he reveals his presence along with the 600. If I was one of those 600 people back there, I'd be like, David, what are you doing? It's okay, like, you don't have to kill him. Just, like, don't tell him we're back here. 600 people, there's 3,000 people outside. They're in a cave. It's game over. You went from, like, it's like, a, you know, uh, you see Daniel and Jefferson playing chess every week, and it's like, you go from having them in checkmate, and then two moves later, it's like, they have you in checkmate. It's like, ah, you let him off the hook. Like, now you're, the tables have flipped back again. But David had so much confidence in God that he was willing to do that. And so he said to Saul, vengeance is the Lord's, right? Vengeance is the Lord. I believe that the Lord will defend. 
Um, and he does the very thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. He turns the other cheek. He offers him. He, in the moment of strength, he actually turns it into a moment of weakness. Right? How, bold, how bold and how confident he must have been in the Lord to do that. And, you know, we oftentimes, I think, sometimes misinterpret this, uh, this passage, you know, turning the other cheek. You know, I think turning the other cheek in this, uh, when Jesus is talking about it, is talking about our enemies, right? But sometimes we use it as, as a reason um, to, I've heard it used to defend injustice, right? Like, oh, man, like even things like abortion or things like that, like turning the other cheek. But turning the other cheek is talking about enemies that are mistreating us. It's not an abdication or responsibility to call out injustice. And I think David's the perfect example here. Because he calls out Saul's injustice. He doesn't turn the other cheek in the sense of never addressing the issue. He actually says to Saul, you're mistreating me. You're unjust. You're listening to, to people lie about me. And you've hunted me without reason. Right? Um, but he still turns the other cheek not in the sense of saying, oh, that's good. Or like never addressing it. But he actually turns it into an appeal. Right? An appeal to the Lord. And say, God is going to give me justice. And the same sort of thing. You know, we, we turn our cheeks. It's not my responsibility to turn somebody else's cheek for them, right, if they're, if they're in, if encountering injustice, all right? <clears throat> all right, but the important thing is uh, mercy, you know, mercy. So Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Micah says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. One of the most important things that Micah says the Lord is calling us to do is to practice mercy. Mercy. David had, in this moment, Saul naked and vulnerable in front of him. And despite all the bad things that Saul had done to him, David exhibited mercy. I, I think it's just a beautiful picture, again, of David's confidence. And also just an insight into how the Lord viewed David and how he, the Lord viewed Saul and the difference between them. You know, when we we're reading through the life of David, and I sometimes get offended at the idea. It's like, man, why did Saul get, like... The Lord was kind of hard on Saul, right? Like, he messed up, like, sometimes. He didn't kill all the, like, he didn't kill the sheep, you know, because he was very practical. He wanted to bring the sheep back, and, you know, they were pretty valuable. And the Lord was like, the kingdom's away from you. It's like, oh, man, well, David, like, murdered his best friend, you know, murdered one of his friends and, like, slept with his wife. I mean, David was pretty, you know, like, pretty bad, too. Why didn't David get mercy? And, again, we've seen that, that God sees the heart, right? So even though Saul, many of those times, repented, you know, God saw his heart. But I think another principle of why David gets so much favor is because David was merciful. David was merciful. In the moments that he had to kill Saul or defend himself against his enemies, he had mercy on them because he trusted in the Lord. And what does Jesus say about that? Well, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitude, the merciful shall receive mercy. Right? So I think that's another element of why God so much favored David. God saw his heart and also God saw his mercy, the way that he practiced mercy against his enemies again and again and again. And we're just seeing the first example here today. But over the next couple chapters, we'll see David practice it again. Mercy again. This isn't the only time that, like, you know, Saul tries to kill him and David lets him off the hook. Um, but God, David continues to practice mercy. I think he did, part of that is why David receives mercy later on in his life. You know, through terrible sin that, that David commits, he receives mercy because he practiced mercy. And how much more so we should take that to heart when we're confronting people who accuse us or people who... Um, have mistreated us is in the moment, you know, like David did, appealing to the Lord, having confidence in our bridegroom, but also remembering that we need to receive mercy too, because sometimes it's us on the other side of that, right? It's us mistreating people. It's us uh, being the Saul. Like, we oftentimes see ourselves in the David position. Actually, guys, like, we're oftentimes the Saul, like, when we don't know it, you know, we may not realize it. How much more we want to receive mercy 
by practicing mercy when it's our, our chance. When we have those David and En Gedi cave opportunities to mistreat the person that mistreated us. You know, think about like, you know, that, bo- that, that manager who mistreated you and all of a sudden you got promoted above them and you have the opportunity to like, you know, mistreat them or fire them. Can we, can I practice mercy? Can I practice mercy like David did? Because I want to be ones who just like the beatitude, I want to be one who receives mercy when it's me on the other side. <clears throat> that can give us confidence to turn the other cheek when we recognize our own need as well. All right. <clears throat> so I just want to plug, you know, plug this again, you know, this psalm. And what a blessing to be able to read David's life, but also to read his songs. Uh, I'm just going to read it one more time. <clears throat> uh, psalm chapter 31, verses 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put ashamed. Be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. And so I want to encourage everybody this week, you know, uh, as we're, we've been, uh, opened up these prayer sets Monday through Friday, you know, morning and evening, 6 to 8. Um, yeah, let's make Psalm 31 our, our prayer this week for those of you who are coming. And if you haven't been, please, please come and join us. Join us in praying during the week. Um, we'd love to have you. But let's make this our prayer this week as we meditate on this passage. I'm going to invite my sister to come up, but this will be our response as well is Psalm 31. You know, the, the difficult situations in our life where somebody's mistreating uh, has been mistreating you uh, or said bad things about you. So I just want to take a few minutes to, to meditate on that. So, um, yeah, just take the next few moments to think about uh, the moments in your life. And they may not even have to be like right now. You know, I can think back on times when I've been mistreated previously. And I don't even talk like this is like a decade ago. But if we haven't forgiven that person or we haven't let that go, or we let that simmer in our hearts as bitterness, um, that's not the Lord's desire for our lives. So think about it. Even in the moment right now or in the past when you've been mistreated or somebody has said false things about you, can, do we have the confidence to give that to the Lord and say, Lord, you saw it. You know. Just like the husband that loves his wife, you know all these things, and you're going to defend. Uh, I put it in your hands. I have confidence that you're going to defend. And that will give us the confidence that when we have those moments where we can take vengeance for ourselves, we won't. We won't because we'll have mercy instead. We'll be able to practice mercy and be ones that receive mercy. To be like Jesus, you know, on the cross, all his enemies around him. He's actually dying for his enemies, and yet he's able to say, God, forgive them. God, forgive them. And he's able to say, into your hands, God, I commit my spirit. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. So think about, just uh, take a minute, you know, identify the, the, the Saul's in your life, the, the Kila's in life, Kila, like that city where they, David helped them, saved them, and then they turned on him and betrayed him. Like, you know, what are those moments in your life where you helped somebody and they responded with ungratefulness or even betrayal? Or the wilderness, the last couple chapters, David's running through the wilderness. What are those wilderness seasons in your life where it is right now where somebody is out to harm you? A daily burden or the moment of desperation where you're feeling encircled in the last chapter we, David was encircled by Saul before the Lord pulled him pulled Saul away so identify those moments and give those to the Lord let's think about those moments and give them to the Lord 
even turning the other cheek and saying, God, I give that to you and I trust, I trust you that you're going to be my defender. I don't have to, I don't have to do crazy things to fight or struggle. I can be confident that you are going to defend me. And then imagine those moments that be prepared, like to prepare our hearts for those moments where we can actually are in a position where we can take vengeance for ourselves and ask the Lord if we have the heart to be like David, to withhold our hand and commit our spirits to the Lord and say, I, I choose mercy instead of vengeance. If you have those moments where the Holy Spirit's just bringing a name or a face to your mind, just give that to the Lord. Just give that to the Lord. Maybe the Holy Spirit's actually highlighting moments where, where you, we've been the Saul, where you've been actually the Saul. Somebody's, uh, you're afraid of somebody or somebody is coming for your position or, or you've mistreated somebody. Maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing those moments into, into your heart that you can actually turn and turn, repent and show mercy. Yes, Jesus, we ask for your grace to do it. We ask you, we thank you for your example, your example on the cross, where you, the king of the universe, humbled yourself. And even though you're surrounded by your enemies, being whipped, beaten, mocked, spit on, by the ones you saved, that you were able to turn and say, God, have mercy on them. They don't know what they do you are able to commit your spirit to the Father, to your confidence in his justice. Jesus, would you give us the same confidence that you, the bridegroom king, can look at your bride and as we cry out day and night for justice, that you will answer speedily because of your love for your bride your faithfulness to her. Would you make us like David, that even in the difficult seasons, in the wilderness, when we're being mistreated, when we're being lied about, Jesus, would you give us grace to be like David, to respond by trusting you that vengeance belongs to the Lord, that we can turn to those who mistreat us, and instead of extending vengeance, extending mercy, God. And lastly, Holy Spirit, would you give us mercy in those moments when we are weak, when we are actually accusing others or mistreating others, would you show us how to walk instead in the way of the Lord, to be humble and meek, to take upon his burden, to die to ourselves and take up the cross, that we would be ones who give mercy, that we may also be ones that then receive mercy, Jesus. We thank you and we trust your leadership. We say that you're a good king, you're a good judge, and even more importantly for this, we say you're a good bridegroom. You're the husband that defends, and so we are going to trust your defense, Jesus. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me, and uh, we're gonna respond with worship. Our worship response is also our time of offering. If you have an offering to bring before the Lord, uh, the offering basket is here in the front as well as we have electronic options for giving as well.